who's wanted to have your own podcast, but you just didn't know where to start. I know that it used to be me until I uh, was told about Anchor.fm. Anchor FM is one of the best podcasting platforms out there because it's free. They help you with distribution, getting onto all the various podcasting platforms. They have tools for editing and for creating all the podcasts. Uh, and they even have monetization tools. It's a really, really great app and website. I highly recommend it. If you want to get your own podcast going, go and download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I can't recommend them highly enough. So download that free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm so you can get started making your own podcast. You know, even if if we don't say, okay, the gospel's reliable, they contain these accounts, so the accounts are true, end of argument. Even if we go a little more subtly and we just say, well, this is what the disciples said, as opposed to being something that the disciples, you know, cousins, uncles, aunt said, okay, no, this is really what the people who would have been right there actually said. Um, How do we know that? And the reliability of the gospels is relevant very strongly relevant to that, that these are not coming at many removes, that this is actually, no, this is what they said, you know, right up front, right from the beginning. Um, and that, of course, is the challenge of, of Christian faith. Is Jesus who he said he is? Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. One question that many people have is, can I trust in the Bible? Can I trust in uh, the New Testament and in the Gospels, which tell me about the Jesus who I try to follow? Or maybe if you are listening and you are questioning Christianity, you're wondering, how can I know that it is true whenever I read these, these very, very old documents? Well, my guest on today's show is one of the best resources that I've uh, come across in recent years to go to, to learn about the historical reliability of the New Testament. And uh, if we can depend on what we are reading, my guest is uh, Dr. Lydia McGrew. Dr. Lydia McGrew has written a lot and talked a lot uh, about the historical reliability of the New Testament through uh, a heavy focus on what she calls internal evidences. This is something we're going to get into uh, deeper in the episode today. We actually talked about a lot of different topics, uh, ranging from uh, what exactly is the New Testament and the Gospels, what kind of literature is it that we're writing, how did it come together, internal versus external evidence, undesigned coincidences, uh, as well as some other types of internal evidence that she provides to us from her various books. Dr. Lydia McGrew is a widely published analytic philosopher and author. She received her PhD in English from Vanderbilt University in 1995. She has published extensively in the theory of knowledge, specializing in formal epistemology and its application to the evaluation of testimony and to the philosophy of religion. She defends the reliability of the Gospels and Acts. In her books, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences, and the Gospels and Acts, The Mirror and the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices, and most recently, The Eye of the Beholder, The Gospel of John as Historical Reportage. Like I said, this was a really great episode. I had a lot of fun getting to talk to Lydia McGrew about uh, the historical reliability and the New Testament. I love, love apologetics and biblical studies brought together. It's so great. Before we get into this conversation today, let me encourage you, if you have not yet already, to subscribe to Filter, whether you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else, subscribe so that you don't miss out on any future content that we have for uh, coming out for you. Really great uh Uh, episodes, guests, and content that'll help to provide you with some Christian worldview resources. So you can do, like I said before, live and understand the times that we are living in well. Subscribe. And if you have not uh, yet already, it really helps us out whenever you give us a rating or review. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, if you give us a like, uh, also leave a comment with any questions that you have from today's episode or feedback. We appreciate it. And uh, when we get to 
we will interact with those comments. Well, there's a lot of great, great information in today's episode. There are a lot of resources for you beyond today's episode that you can find in the show notes. So after you listen to this episode, if you want to dig into anything that we talked about further or, or get to look at something that was mentioned, you can find those by going to the show notes down at the link in the description to this on YouTube or podcast and uh, click that link and it'll take you to the full show notes on my website. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Dr. Lydia McGrew. Lydia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's great to have you here today. I've been really looking forward to this. I've been following your work for a while now, and so it's exciting to get to have this talk with you. Uh, before we jump into a conversation on uh, the historical reliability for the Gospels and uh, biblical studies, apologetics, and so on, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background. We already got to hear your bio, but just tell us about what is your academic, your formal academic training in, and how does it, how did it influence or lead you to what you're doing now? So my PhD is in English literature, and that I received in 1995 from Vanderbilt University. Uh, I turned almost immediately thereafter to publishing in philosophy. My husband, Tim McGrew, is a uh, analytic philosopher, and I began publishing at first jointly with him, and then by myself on my own. And um, if you have a good quality um paper, it is, it goes through blind reviews. So it doesn't matter, you know, whether you have the degree and the reviewers are, are very strict in analytic philosophy and they look at it, they decide. And if you get reviewers to say, yes, this should be published, it gets published. So um, mm -hmm. I've done, I've got a very long publication record uh, in uh, analytic philosophy and particularly the theory of knowledge. Um, my husband and I are Christians. We've been Christians throughout our professional work. And so we always wanted our work to be a benefit to the body of Christ. And so we have always been working uh, in the background on apologetics. We wrote uh, the article on the resurrection of Jesus in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology that was published way back in 2009, over 10 years ago now. And um, then we got to work on the background to that, even more of the background to that in New Testament studies. So my husband discovered and uh, helped to revive the argument from undesigned coincidences that we're going to discuss today and then in his lectures. And then I um, had happened to be the one to have the time to write a book length treatment of it and got that published. And then I got more deeply into the New Testament studies where what I'm doing is what's called interdisciplinary work, where I'm applying my knowledge in probability theory and the theory of knowledge to the field of New Testament studies and kind of putting those together. And so I've been doing that since uh, 2017 and then have written uh, three, uh, you know, two, two more books beyond Hidden in Plain View where I'm trying to do that. So that's, that's kind of how I got into this. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you and you and Tim are the power couple of Christian apologetics, right? Well, <laughs> Working you know, together we, and... Uh, you know, do, putting out some great work, but it is, it is through both of you that I started that I learned about uh, the the topics that in arguments that we're discussing today, and so I really appreciate the the work that y'all do. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. We, we we try to make that available to the body of Christ, and I've been trying to do it in a in a variety of media. So you know, I have a YouTube channel, I have books, I have uh, you know archived blog posts and um the books are in you know kindle as well as uh paper and you know all of that for people who uh prefer different media mm -hmm. yeah and all of that's gonna be in the show notes for anyone who's listening and you really enjoy what we talk about make sure you check out the show notes because everything that we discuss and all of lydia's work will be linked so let's begin with just establishing and talking about what kind of literature is in the New Testament, uh, because I, I think it's really important to understand as we get into uh, the, these topics on undesigned coincidences and internal versus external evidence and so on. Just whenever we, uh, wh what kind of literature are the Gospel of Acts and how does that impact the way that we approach those as uh, when we read them? So I would refer to both the Gospels and Acts as memoirs. Um, I like that terminology because it has the idea of um, 
something that's written by either, you know, a person who was right there himself or who's very close to someone who was right there. You know, it's very few removes. That's a term that the Church Father Justin Murder used for the Gospels. And I think it applies well to Acts as well. Um because it conveys that notion of being close up to the facts. The other thing I would emphasize about what kind of literature these are is that they present themselves as strongly historical. You know, I, I believe that it's clear they are intending and attempting to get the consent of the reader to accept them or the hearer, they were often read aloud, to accept them as robustly, strongly historical. Um, they were not, you know, novels or semi-factual, semi-fictional, they're presenting themselves as fully historical. So if they are not fully historical and like the author is deliberately inserting some other material that isn't, then then I would call, I would say they would have to be elaborate hoaxes, and uh, which I obviously don't think that they are. But the point is this is kind of a stark division. And I think there is a stark division. I think because of that way that they present themselves as memoirs, um, you can't have that com sort of comfortable middle way. Like, well, maybe they're not exactly historical, but they're not exactly non-historical. It's like, no, you have to choose. Um, either they are historical witnesses or they are hoaxes. And, uh, and I think that's actually kind of an important point to stress is that self-presentation as fully historical. Yeah, absolutely. And were these gospels, uh, were the gospels and acts written? Uh, so you, you said by eyewitnesses, as we would consider a memoir being the testimony of a person's life or experience through something. Uh, were, were they written together? Did Matthew, Mark, Luke and John uh, get together and talk about their experience, kind of reminisce and write their gospels? Or, or how did the gospels come together as historical memoirs? Well, uh, I I don't think that Mark or Luke actually personally knew Jesus. I don't think that either of them had met Jesus, but they were acquainted with the disciples. Now, uh, no doubt many of the disciples knew one another. I mean, I think Matthew, um, you know, definitely knew John, for example, because I, they were both disciples. So no doubt they did talk about their experiences and reminisce. I actually think there's evidence that Luke had access to Peter uh, as well as Mark. And Mark, the uh, church father said, was a follower of Peter. But I think Luke had separate access to Peter. So uh, were they talking to one another? Of course. But I do not believe that they were planning their gospels in the sense of saying, hey, I'll say this, and then you say that, and, and so forth. I think that they were giving their own accounts in ways that were uh, that had independence to them. Now, you know, we can get into questions of certain amount of literary dependence among Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's a complicated question, sometimes known as the synaptic uh, problem. I would prefer to call it the synoptic puzzle. Um, there may have been some literary dependence there, but there is also factual independence. And this is something that people have to get sort of wrap their minds around, that it's not like either they're completely independent, they were all locked up in separate rooms, and they never so much as saw the other person's uh, document, or they are so dependent that it's like, eh, you know, they're just copied from one another. It's actually much more subtle and nuanced and complicated than that. Um, and I do believe that all four of the Gospels have independent factual material in them, sometimes even in small details of the stories where they appear similar. So that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And I think it's really important to understand that because, uh, number one, I think that a lot of Christians are just unaware of what, what the Gospels are and, and how they came together. I think that they have many, many average Christians hold kind of like one of those two extreme positions. Like, like you mm -hmm. said, either they all sat together writing it out saying like what you said before, you know, you tell this story and I'll tell this story mm -hmm. uh, or they are completely separated. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to say that just since many Christians aren't aware and because uh, having a baseline understanding of, of what they are and how they came together uh, really, really helps to fill in and gain some understanding to the evidence that you're going to be presenting today. Before we, we really get into the evidence, though, just just kind of one more foundational question would be: uh, you know, the New Testament is very is a very old document. Is it possible to test the reliability of the New Testament, being uh, how old it is, thousands and thousands of years old, reporting on events that happened? 2,000 years ago now. Is it even possible to test the reliability of the New Testament? And if so, 
what are some ways that we can go about doing it? And the short answer to that, of course, is yes, as we'll see, you know, as we discuss the evidence uh, that that we're going to be talking about here today. But um, I think the word test is an interesting one. Uh, some broad level methodological comments there. I think we want to be testing comparatively. And I think this is true for um, scientific theories, historical uh, investigation, and investigation of a crime that happened yesterday in your neighborhood. That you're talking about, you're looking at the evidence and you're saying, is this more what we would expect if this theory is true or if it is false? Or is it more what we would expect if this theory is true or that theory is true? And so you're, you're testing them comparatively against one another, as opposed to thinking that we're going to go in there and it's like we've got a test tube, you know, and we, we drop this in there. And if the water turns blue, you know, then it's true. And if the water turns any other color, then it's false. It's, it's a more complicated process of testing theories against one another. So that's one thing we want to test comparatively. Another thing is that we want to take all evidence into account. And that is related to the third point, which is that we want to look at cumulative cases. So we're going to have this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence, and we want to try to put that all together and get our, our big picture in much the way that a detective might do. And I do think that uh, detective metaphors are very helpful here. Um, this is why I like uh, Jay Warner Wallace's cold case Christianity approach. You know, it's like, what are our clues? What is our evidence? And we want to take negative evidence into account as well so that uh, people are prepared for uh, objections that they're going to encounter. But at the same time, we don't want to just get overwhelmed with objections. We want to see the positive case as a cumulative case as well. So I think when we approach it in that way, that um, that comparative, uh, a cumulative, and big picture, all evidence kind of way, we can definitely test documents that are old as well as documents that are new. Yeah. I think it's really good to emphasize like what you're saying, the that we're making a cumulative case. So uh, you're not going to present anything in this episode that is the that is the the one conclusive piece of evidence once and for all. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, and if you were to make the that that case, it would take us far far longer than the time that we have for uh, for this podcast. Uh, and, and so what you're doing is you're presenting uh, a, a piece of evidence to add to that cumulative case that uh, if we were to, you know, be doing a series or if someone were to go and read afterwards and explore some more that, uh, it, that it adds to like a, a slice of the pie, right? We're, we're adding a piece to the slice of the, the evidence pie. Well, and what I am going to try to do is give a little bit of a map, too, so that we can, you know, even if we can't get into the details of the other kinds, we can go, oh, wow, they, they, you know, there's this kind over here and there's this other kind over here. Like, what what kinds of pies are there? You might almost mm -hmm. say, you know, there's strawberry and rhubarb and cherry and peach and so forth. Um, and so sometimes I like to think of it almost as like a, a, a tree or a bush, you know, where you've got... This is, uh, these are several examples of this part of the roots over here. And then there's this other type of a root over here and this other type. And when you're done, this thing is really well grounded, you know, because it's got all of these different roots that are kind of going into the ground and holding it up. And I often say that when people write to me, they say they're having doubts about their faith. Um, I'll say, slow down, slow down, get a sense of the, uh, of the, the map of the landscape of the evidence or the different kinds of evidence instead of, of going, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? You know, you have these people, they're almost ADD, you know, they're jumping around, you know, playing whack-a-mole, you know, like hitting all the different objections. And they'll be like, if you can't answer this objection tonight, I'm losing my faith or that kind of thing. And, and I'll say, no, that's, it's not how you go about it. You take your time and you get a sense of that landscape. And that gives you such a sense of confidence because you'll say, oh, I've seen that type of objection before. That's another argument from silence. Or, um, oh, wow, you know, there's this whole other, whole other type of evidence I haven't even had a chance to explore yet. And it really leads to this mature and well-grounded confidence in the case for Christianity. It really does. And I, I can echo that personally, just saying the times in my, in my life that I've been, that I've wrestled or struggled with doubt. And I'll start to question one, one specific thing. 
like mm-hmm. like you said before, mm-hmm. whatever that might be. But the topic for today, the reliability of the Bible, or whatever else. I start to doubt that one thing, but then having read a, a lot of apologetics now and been in this world for a while, then I start to remember all these other arguments is or arguments is <laughs> arguments and evidences and, and and other things that I that I've read and studied and 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 know and believe and uh and, and ultimately that helps me keep me grounded to work through that fog of doubt until until I can find resolution, right? And so yeah, well so it, it's a cumulative case, but what you're presenting is I've got to say also personally one of my favorite pieces or types of evidences, which is the internal evidence. So in all three of your books, uh, to one extent or another, they're built upon uh, a, a distinction between internal versus external evidences. Can you explain what that means? This distinction, I think, holds up uh, in a wide variety of cases. There are uh, edge cases that sort of cross over between internal and external, but I think it's a useful distinction. Um, broadly speaking, I'll begin with external evidence. External evidence for the Bible or the Gospels would involve things like archaeology um, or other non-biblical writers where we're taking a statement in a biblical book and we're comparing it directly to some other fact. So to give an example just briefly here, John the Evangelist says that Bethany was about 15 furlongs from Jerusalem. So this is like one tiny little example of external evidence. And we have a pretty good idea of where Bethany was, and we know what a furlong was. And so that's archaeology or topography. And we put those together and we go, oh, look, it is about 15 furlongs from Jerusalem. That's external evidence, right? Mm -hmm. So you're just taking this statement and you're comparing it to something that lies outside of the biblical canon altogether. So, uh, or comparing it with uh, some statement in Josephus, uh, who is a a Jewish extra biblical historian. Broadly speaking, that's external evidence. Internal evidences are evidences that are, uh, you might use external information as background knowledge, and that's where the distinction gets a little bit gray, but you would have it as background knowledge, and then you go to what's in the documents that are considered canonical scripture, and you will put them inside of that. Maybe you'll compare them to one another, as today when we talk about undesigned coincidences, you'll see how they fit together, and then you'll fit, fit that together or some characteristic of the document, together with more general knowledge of how witnesses talk, uh, what we find in witness testimony as opposed to fiction, how uh, how is oral history given? What do people sound like if you talk to someone who was there at a battle or who was in the Iraq war or something? You know, How does he talk? Uh, or how do liars talk? What do liars tend to do? And so we put it together with our more general knowledge of human nature uh, or what um, a, uh, a detective might call forensic statement analysis. And, and then we see how this fits together to confirm, do these seem like truthful history? And that would be considered internal evidence. Exactly. And you argue that there's this internal evidence that's been hidden in plain view, which is actually the title of your your 2017 book, Mm -hmm. and that this is undesigned coincidences. Uh, Can you explain what that term means and uh, and, and what what that refers to in the Bible? Uh, We'll get into like some examples in, in a moment after that. Uh, but just first, what does that term mean? Sure. I guess, I, I suppose you, you could give a little bit of the background of it too, un, the undesigned coincidences. Right. So it, yeah. it came from the author um, uh, Paley, William Paley, uh, writing in the late 1700s and then was picked up and uh, people did more with it in the 1800s, which would be the 19th century. Um, so coincidence here should be maybe said to be coincidence, things coming together. And then undesigned is that the authors don't appear to be trying to make their books or their statements stick together. It's not like, oh, he said that. I'll try to make mine fit together with what he said. So it happens, but it happens casually. Um, When I wrote Hidden in Plain View, I did not have any quick ways of describing it. Since then, I've come up with two, which I kind of wish I'd come up with before I wrote the book. But so one that I've used in a lot of other interviews is an undesigned coincidence is an 
incidental interlocking that points to truth. And then more recently, I thought of a casual connection that points to truth. So you can use either of those. Uh, a sort of modern hypothetical example I like to use is two witnesses to a bank robbery. And uh, so one witness says the, the bank robber had his shoe untied. That he noticed that his shoe was untied. And then you're interviewing the other witness and he says, when the bank robber ran out of the bank, he tripped as he ran away. Okay. And neither of them mentions what the other one mentions. Like, it's not like the second person speaks up and says, oh, maybe that's why, you know, he, tr he tripped when he ran away. Now, he might, he might be telling the truth. That doesn't mean he's not telling the truth. But it's not as impressive as it is if, if the guy who says that he tripped doesn't say anything about his shoe being untied and the guy who says his shoe is untied doesn't say anything about his tripping. So they don't appear to be trying to make their stories fit with the other person's story. Um, it's that casual connection that we say, wow, you know, that makes it look like they're telling the truth because it maybe he tripped because his shoe was untied and we can put them together in that way. So that is an undesigned coincidence or coincidence. Gotcha. And, uh, and so we find a lot of these in the Gospels. And you know, it's plausible that if we were to just find one of them in the Gospels, that someone could say, well, it was intentionally placed there to, uh, to, to trick us into thinking they're reliable or that, that it was undesigned. Uh, but it, through your research and uh, from Paley and your own research and, and, and others, you found quite a number of these undesigned coincidences now. About how many have you found to date? If you if you have a number of undesigned people coincidences love to ask me that. And the problem the is sometimes they're sort of like inside of each other. They're like nested. So you have an undesigned coincidence inside of an undesigned coincidence. It makes it hard to count. Um, so, you know, I would say dozens. I'll put it that way, you know a good, even if we just like stick to the gospels, a good two dozen, you know, mm. at, at least. And I, I'm always finding more. I've, I've thought of what I would consider to be a new one just in the last two days. So that's kind of cool. Um, Interesting. So that, that does happen as you pay attention, as you, as you read something new will, will occur to you. And, you know, if I were going to go for a skeptical theory, uh, in any given case, I'd probably just go for sheer coincidence over planning because I just do not look planned at all. You know, if, so if you want to go for that, you can say, oh, maybe maybe it's just an accident. Maybe Jesus just spoke to that disciple because that guy happened to be standing there, you know, or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, I'd go more for that than for plotting and planning because the plotting and planning, you know, I'm a philosopher. And so we have this thing we call a Cartesian deceiver scenario where like, you know, Maybe maybe my cup doesn't really exist, but there's someone trying out there trying to deceive me into thinking that my cup exists, or we're all in the matrix or something. And mm -hmm. we learn to be very um, suspicious of those kinds of theories because they're just too improbable. Um, but sometimes things do just happen by accident, and that that's where the multitude of them just makes it hard to uh, keep on attributing them to coincidence. Exactly. And so do you want to give just go ahead and give one example. Maybe what would you say is in your in your writing and, and talking about this? What has been one of the most popular examples that just makes people say, wow. And, and so I'm going to give one that's one of the most popular, partly because people say, wow, and partly because it can be stated pretty quickly. Um, in Matthew 14, he is talking about um John the Baptist, and he's talking about Jesus. So he's about to tell the story of how John the Baptist was beheaded. He kind of tells it as a flashback. Mark does the same thing. And I think that Matthew may be dependent on Mark here. I suppose it's possible Mark is dependent on Matthew, just in the sense that it was easier to kind of work from another document than write the whole thing yourself. But um, when Matthew does it, he has something that's a little bit different, that's ind independent and separate. So he says, he starts out by saying that Herod heard about Jesus' miracles and his disciples' uh, ministry. And he said, this must be John the Baptist who rose from the dead. And that's how he's doing all these miracles. Uh, and then goes into saying, because, you know, Herod had killed John the Baptist. So he's got kind of a guilty conscience. 
And uniquely in Matthew, it says that he said it to his servants. Okay, and said it to his servants. So the question is, is he just making this up, you know, to make it more vivid? Instead of just saying he said it, we're going to say he said it to his servants. Um, But when you go over to Luke 8, Luke is not talking about the beheading of John the Baptist. Completely different context. Luke is listing some women who contributed to Jesus' ministry. And he starts listing them. And then he lists one. It is Joanna who is the wife of Husa, who was Herod's steward or household manager. And so now suddenly we have this very plausible way by which Matthew could have learned what was being said by Herod to his servants, because Husa must have been at least somewhat supportive of Jesus' ministry or his wife would not have been in that culture. Um, and so like if they're talking, he he says, oh, you know, the boss said this, you know, about Jesus today. And then it gets its way back to the Christian community and makes its way into Matthew's gospel that this is what Herod said to his servants. So at that point, we have that partial uh, similarity between Matthew and Mark, but also partial independence, this little detail, he was saying it to his servants. But we get it, we get that plausibility from a completely unrelated passage in Luke. So I think that's a, that's a really cool one that comes together there. That's great. And so what are some more examples of undesigned coincidences from the Gospels? Well, here would be one I just kind of alluded to briefly. Um, when in the Gospel of John, Jesus is about to feed the 5,000. He says to Philip, where can we buy bread for these to eat? And uh, all four Gospels tell about the feeding of the 5,000. It has uh, more undesigned coincidences connected with it than any other event in the Gospels, I think because all four Gospels tell about it. Um, and only only John mentions that it was Philip. Now, you know, Okay, maybe Philip was just standing at Jesus' elbow, and you know, chances one out of twelve, right, among his disciples. But there's there's no specific reason why it should have been Philip if it was made up. If it was made up, you know, I mean, you could make a Peter or James or John; they're like more prominent. So mm-hmm. um, it, it, that doesn't really seem to fit with its being made up. Uh, and I mean, unless they just kind of said "eeny, meeny, miny, mo," you know, among all the the, the disciples or something. Um, but when we put together several other passages, we get an explanation. But it's like a little jigsaw puzzle, which I like. Um, so another piece of the puzzle is you go to Luke, and Luke mentions that this took place in the region of Bethsaida, near a, the town of Bethsaida. Well, okay, so what? You say, well, now we go back to John again, but to other contexts, nothing to do with the feeding of the 5,000 at all. Uh, he happens to mention in John 2 and again in John 12, apropos of totally different topics, that Philip was from Bethsaida. But John doesn't mention that it took place near Bethsaida. And Luke doesn't mention that Jesus spoke to Philip at this time. So you have to put all these little things together and then you get, you know, and and John does say he was testing them for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus is kind of teasing his disciples a little bit. Hey, Philip, you know, where, where can we get bread to feed these? And then, you know, of course they say, even if we had all this money, we couldn't buy enough. So, you know, they fall right into it. You know, he's kind of poking them a little bit. And then, of course, he mm-hmm. multiplies the bread and fish. But it's, I think, plausible that it was because Philip was um, from that region that he asked him specifically that question. But you have to put together these little clues to uh, come up with that explanation. Yeah. Yeah. And that explanation just makes sense. Sure. Right. It, it, it just makes sense. It, may, it makes so much more sense than what you were saying before, that, that someone was... Uh, fabricating the story and just chose a random disciple mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. for Jesus to ask. And then one of the other gospel writers just happened to mention that, that you know, Philip's from Bethsaida. Like it just, it just, it makes sense. Like you were saying earlier, at the beginning of the, the, this episode that, um, that these gospels present themselves as memoir and they present themselves as historical. They're, they're just simply telling the truth. And that is what these undesigned coincidences really read as is just mm-hmm. wit- witness testimony, telling the truth. Mm-hmm. You, you've mentioned before uh, that um, that the feeding of the five thousand has the most 
undesigned coincidences attached to it. Is that is that right? Of any incident in the in the Gospels, yes. Yeah. Uh, so just it, as far as you just count them up. That, that's one example. It, it, can you think of another example off the top of your head from for the feeding that, the five thousand specifically? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, sure. So, for example, Mark says they sat down on the green grass, and he actually uses chloros, like what we would use for chlorophyll or whatever. Um, and and he's not the only one to mention grass. John mentions grass, but he's the only one to mention green. And so then here's where a little background knowledge comes in handy. Is it's not always green around there, you know. Um, But there are times of year when it's green, when it's rained and so forth after the winter rain. And um, then John says that Passover was near at hand. So you put that together with Mark's mention of the green grass and those fit together really well. You know, that um, it's like if someone said it was near Easter time and someone here, you know, in, in Michigan or something, mentioned um oh i don't know forsythia you know we that's about when the forsythia comes out you know mm-hmm. so it but it's the they each mention only one part of it and then they fit together yeah there are many many of these in the gospels but the new testament is made up of more than just the gospels there's also acts there's the epistles are there undesigned coincidences for for acts and the epistles as well yeah, so William Paley actually uh, does way more with Acts and the Epistles, and he he mentions it that it connects with the Gospels, but he didn't write up a lot of them uh, with the Gospels. But he wrote an entire book called the Horai Polini, which is free online because it's so you know so old it's no longer in copyright. Now Paley was emphasizing both the truth of the Gospel, of the Book of Acts and the authorship of the Epistles, and so he kind of even more often he will use these to support the Pauline authorship of the Pauline epistles. Um, but they can also support the historicity of acts. And so that's what I'm more often emphasizing in hidden in plain view is how they uh, show the historicity of the book of acts. And so there's a bunch of those uh, and they're, they're very cool. They're among some of the best ones. So sometimes they take a little longer to, to, uh, to explain, but here's one that can be explained relatively quickly. In uh, in the epistle of Galatians, uh, Paul says, he's, he's kind of telling his conversion story, or we would call his testimony. And he says that he went to Arabia, and then he says, I returned again to Damascus. Now, the interesting thing is he has not mentioned Damascus previously in the story. Okay, so he's telling about it, but he says, I returned again to Damascus. Why returned to Damascus? So then you go to Acts, of course, and you know we all use this phrase, the Damascus Road, a Damascus Road experience, and of course Acts, which account the account probably also came from Paul, but he would have given it at a different time to his companion who wrote the book of Acts, and he says, uh, and it says that he was on the road to Damascus when he saw the light from heaven and heard the voice and all of that and was converted. And then he goes into Damascus because he's blind and so forth. So just that little mention in Galatians, I returned again to Damascus, shows that these accounts are both coming from reliable sources and the truth of it, that it was associated with Damascus, but it's not like, it's not the same account. You know, even if they both came from Paul, one of them appears to have been told to, you know, his friend at a different Mm -hmm. time. And the other one is in the epistle and it doesn't look like they're based on one another. Interesting. Yeah. It's really, it, it helps to understand sort of the timeline of Paul's letters in relation to Acts, because once you start to understand those better, then you can you can start to see uh, a lot of these undesigned coincidences between Acts and his epistles, as he as he's just mentioning offhand different different uh, different things in his epistles, such as uh, sending Timothy or talking or whenever he'll mention offhand uh, towards the end of one of his letters that he's planning on coming. And if you mm-hmm. know kind of when this letter was written in relation to Acts, it makes sense because oh, he was. You know, he was in prison here. And so and and we see he, he was trying to make his way to wherever he was writing to. And so uh, and, and so those are really, really excellent, too, to be able to see. But there's more than just undesigned coincidences as far as un- internal evidence in the Gospels. In your other two books, 
uh, the mirror or, or the mask and the eye of the beholder, the eye of the beholder being your, your most recent one, um, you write about some other types of truthfulness that we can see in the Gospels other than the undesigned coincidences. So what are some of those that you've written about in your newer books? Yeah, and that's what's been cool to me to realize that there are so many other kinds of evidence as well. Um, one that I talk about is unexplained allusions, which uh, looks like truth because it's like a it's a dangling loose end. So, for example, in John two twelve, it says they went down to Capernaum, Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed for a few days. That's it. Right. And then it goes, uh, and it was Passover and he went to Jerusalem and it's like, it just, it goes nowhere. It comes from nowhere. It's just, just dropped in the middle of it. And that really sounds like it comes from a person who was there. Um, it just doesn't fulfill any literary purpose. In fact, literarily it, it interrupts. So that's an example, an un, unexplained allusions. Uh, the unity of Jesus' character. I have an entire section on this in the eye of the beholder on the Gospel of John. You'll hear people say that the Jesus of John is different from the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is absolutely not true. And so there's all these little personality traits of Jesus that come up, but in different stories. They're not all in the same story, which is really neat. Um, another one is the unity of the characters of some other people. So Peter, for mm, example, I have yeah. a whole section on the personality of Peter in uh, the mirror or the mask. Um, there's a lot of external evidence, incidental external evidence. And I love this because people are often looking for big external evidence like, oh, you know, does Josephus ever talk about the resurrection or something? Well, no, as a matter of fact, he doesn't, you know, um, and, and they think that's the kind of external evidence we should be looking for. But it's almost better to have like what I gave as an illustration before mentioning in passing how far Bethany was from Jerusalem. And then it turns out that is how far Bethany was from Jerusalem. And the Gospels are just full of these. Um, the evidence of what I call asides, this comes up in John, that he'll give Jesus words and then he'll pause. And as the narrator, he'll tell you what he thinks Jesus meant. There's a lot of those. Uh, this he said concerning his body. This he said concerning the spirit who was not yet given. Um and after he was raised, his disciples understood his words and these kinds of things. You know, it's like he's saying, pausing to explain something. Why is that evidence of truth? Because it's a scholarly theory that John put his own words in Jesus' mouth. That if he thought something was what Jesus really meant, he would kind of make Jesus say it. Like what we would call a sock puppet, you know. Hmm. Like, I'm mm -hmm. going to talk over here and then I'm going to pretend that it's a d different guy, but it's really still me talking over yeah. here you know, on the internet. Um, but if the if the author is pausing and making a distinction between his own interpretation and what he's citing Jesus is saying, then it looks like he is distinguishing them, you know, because yeah. otherwise he would have just put it in Jesus' mouth. So that's mm -hmm. evidence of, of truthfulness. So there's all of these and, and even more that I've come up with. And I, I think that's really uh, exciting. Uh, reconcilable variation so th that you can uh, harmonize. That's actually evidence of truthfulness, that things are varied. They're different. They might even present some appearances of discrepancy. And yet when you think about them, they fit together. Um, that's not some kind of weird Christian thing. You know, that's something we find in truthful history as well. Jay Warner Wallace likes to give the example of a, one witness who said the culprit ran away from the scene of the crime. And another witness said the culprit jumped into a truck and drove away from the scene of the crime. And it looks like a discrepancy. But then you discovered that the one witness was looking out the window from this direction and the other witness was looking out the window from this direction. And this guy saw the culprit run away. And then this guy saw him get into his truck. So that's reconcilable variation for you. And I think that's also evidence of truthfulness. So these are all uh, really cool. And I wanted to yeah. mention, too, you were talking about acts um, and Placing the epistles, it's a really cool fact that Acts never mentions that Paul wrote any epistles. Mm, mm -hmm. yeah. So you stop and you think about that, and then you also find that so often we can make a very reasonable uh, stab at saying where an epistle was written. It, 
based on these little incidental connections. And it's very clear the author of Acts is not trying to do that. It's just coming up. Uh, and, you know, you almost get the feeling that he he was more interested in the action than in uh, all of this heavy doctrine that Paul was writing in his epistles. You know, he wants to tell about the shipwreck and he wants to tell about uh, the travel and that kind of thing. And so you can actually place them, but he never says, and Paul was writing a letter at this time, or, you know, he was worried about that at this time. No, and yet you can figure out when Paul wrote it. So these are also evidences of truthfulness. Yeah, that's great. The, um, which one was it? Uh the one where you mentioned, I, I can't remember the term that you, that you had for it, but the one where you mentioned that we can see how the authors would uh, report what Jesus said and then give, insert their own comment. What, what was the term you used? Aside. aside. That, that's new for me. I have not heard that before. And, and that just makes so much sense. You're, you're right. If they were just fabricating or putting words into his mouth, then what, what, what's the need for the aside? That make that makes so much sense. That that's something new that I have not heard before. Especially uh, in John. I love that. And John is the one who gets accused of that most of all. And yet he's really? the one who most of all has an asides. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I love that. Um another one you mentioned was the the reconcilable uh variations. Variations. The reconcilable variations. Can you give some examples of those? I would say the um resurrection stories mm-hmm. are really good. There's lots of them. Yeah. There's tons of them, but the resurrection stories are good examples. Um, so for example, you know, you'll see the, the skeptic will say, well, you know, when did Mary Magdalene see Jesus? You know, did she see him with the other women uh, when they came and, and then they saw the angels and then they were leaving to tell the disciples and they see the Jesus on the road? Or did she see Jesus um, alone as in the Gospel of John? You know, and if you read only Matthew by itself, you might think that she saw Jesus on the road when she was with the other women. Uh, and so then this will be turned into this huge, you know, contradiction. Like how did, what order did the women come to the tomb and like, how did that all work out? Um, and yet you can put those together quite well. I think if you just think of uh Matthew has a camera and John has a camera and it's like in a movie of all, of all times we who have movies should be able to understand this okay so it's like Matthew's camera follows the rest of the women as they go up to the uh you know up to the tomb right and then and then the angel speaks to them and then they leave and see Jesus John's camera follows Mary Magdalene you know, and, and maybe, maybe Matthew didn't know that Mary Magdalene left, but John makes it clear like she sees the the stone taken away and then she maybe consults hastily with the other women. She says, I'm going to go run and tell Peter and John. And John's camera follows her off stage, as it were, in comparison to the other women. She goes back and she even says to Peter and John, we know not where they have laid him. So there's this implication that she had been there with other women. Um, And then she comes back later uh, and Peter and John come and they go in, they see it empty, they leave. And it says, but Mary stood by the tomb weeping. So the other women are gone by this time. Peter and John are gone by this time. And she has not got the memo yet that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so she is weeping. And that's when this wonderful scene that we have in John 20 occurs. So the fact that these can be put together, there's a little book called Easter Enigma by uh, the late John Wenham. Now, I am not going to endorse every harmonization he puts in there or every conjecture. For example, he conjectures that uh, Mary of Bethany was Mary Magdalene. I don't even know why he does that, but uh, you know, it's, it's just, that's his conjecture. So, uh, and I don't think that's true, but the point is it's what uh, scientists like to call a proof of concept. So proof of concept is when you say, you know, could this work out? Okay. And so that's what he, Wenham is doing is he's putting them together in a way that could work out. And as he puts it, this approach is, is very fruitful. It's very productive that you kind of meditate on the passages and you see how they fit together. And that's what he's doing is reconcilable variation. So that, that would be an example. 
Yeah, this is one that you see skeptics arguing very, very often that uh, how can we believe in the New Testament or the Gospels when they're presenting all these different stories with all these the, the, these different variations or, mm-hmm. um, or, or as they might want to call contradictions. I'm sure you, you've read those arguments and you've had those oh, yeah. arguments leveled against you, I'm sure, or, or, challenge, or, or, or given to you as a challenge. Yeah. Uh, whenever you've heard or read those arguments, have there ever been any that you weren't able to reconcile or, or some that you found particularly difficult to reconcile? And there are. And I, I think it's important that we not say, OK, like at all costs, we have to reconcile these, you know, um, and I think we have to be willing to say, ah, you know, this one, this is a toughie, you know, uh, and then you can go in different directions, you know, depending. You could say uh, sometimes real life witnesses do contradict one another on small matters, even if they're telling the truth. Or you can say, you know, I'm going to hold out. Maybe something else will come up that will reconcile it. Um, And I think this is part of the idea that we are not doing anything um, just out of this huge theological bias, you know, and it, it is amazing. I see it in skeptics. I even see it, unfortunately, in some Christians. They'll say harmonization is is nonsense. Uh, there is a, a scholar, I don't know quite what to call him. I, I would not call him a Christian scholar. I would call him a um, sort of agnostic scholar. Dale Allison was on mm. a skeptical channel recently being interviewed, and he said harmonization is ridiculous. I believe that was his exact, those were his exact words, harmonization is ridiculous. Um, well, that's ridiculous. When I read Plutarch, who is a Roman historian, I have no commitment to the inerrancy of Plutarch. I try to harmonize because that's a responsible historical thing to do. Now, there may be times when I decide that doesn't seem to be working. If I'm listening to two of my friends tell a story and they there's some kind of little apparent you know, discrepancy. Maybe I'll go back and ask one of them about it, or I'll say, well, maybe this is how that works out. I'll try to harmonize. Not because I am committed that my friends are infallible, but because that's just a reasonable way to approach documents. So I think that's something that we need to be willing to do. Um, I just don't, I don't think we should say like, at all costs, whatever happens, I'm going to find and, and hook my wagon to some harmonization or other, because that's when it, it ceases to be historically responsible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be really easy to start to 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 read a detail into it that's not there, right? Or or assume some context behind whatever it is that you're reading that 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 isn't quite there. And that's not necessarily that. wrong as a matter of conjecture, but if it's really like implausible or strained, and yes, are there going to be differences of opinion? Yes, there are going to be differences of opinion about what's implausible or strained. Um, the, the funny thing is, you know, critical New Testament scholars, they're like the princes of the P, with the princes of the P with, um, you know, what they consider strained. You know, it's like any degree of historical imagination, like even what I just did with the, the women. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that's strained. And it's like, yeah. my goodness, boys, you know, and you think the gospel authors made all this stuff up and you don't think that's strained. You know, it's it's astounding. You know, they kind of they have it like, to my mind, reversed as to what is strained and what is not strained. So, yes, there can be considered differences of opinion. But I think um, as long as we're trying to be honest and careful, we definitely should use historical imagination. That's completely legitimate as a tool of investigation. Excellent. Uh, going back to the uh, other evidences that you had shared from your other two books, uh, a couple of others that, that I found really interesting that, that, that I, I'm, I'm more aware of that weren't completely new would be the consistency of Jesus' character being presented across all four Gospels. Um, I, I haven't read those two books, uh, but do you also argue that his character is being presented consistently across the New Testament? Uh, Because I know that a lot of people say that uh, the Jesus of Paul is different than the Jesus of the Gospels. Is that something that you've researched into? I I don't get into that in the books, but Mm -hmm. I would I would say that's wrong. I mean, I think that I think he is uh, consistent. The thing is that Paul is talking about theology more. And so when I talk about his character, I mean, yeah, you know, I am getting into the question of Christology and did Jesus mm-hmm. utter the I am sayings and all of that, especially in the book on John. But what I'm most interested in are little indications of like his personality. Yeah. And um, that, you know, 
since Paul did not personally know him, Paul is not giving so much insights into his personality. Uh, and that's what's very, very cool to see. So, um, okay, I'll give one quick example here would be um, when Jesus says uh, in the book of Luke, He's having a, one of those we call a Sabbath controversy about whether or not it's legal to heal on the Sabbath. And so he's healed this woman who for 18 years has not been able to stand up. And the ruler of the synagogue says, you people should come and be healed on the other days of the week, not on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, you will loose your ox, I think he says, uh, to take him to get water on the Sabbath. Why should I not loose this woman who has been bound for 18 years? So he's using the word loose, you know, to untie. is a way of kind of showing hypocrisy or a loss of perspective or a double standard, whatever we want to call it. Um, So then we go to the book of John, completely different healing at the pool of Bethesda when uh, he tells the man to get up and walk and to carry his pallet. You know, they weren't supposed to carry things on the Sabbath. And so then the Pharisees are upset. Of course, it's a completely different location. That one's in Jerusalem different incident, everything. Uh, and the Pharisees are upset, A, because he healed on the Sabbath, and B, because he told the man to carry something. Um, so then in John 7, he refers to that miracle again. He's like still ticked off at them, as it were. And so he said, uh, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed, or you all wondered. Um, on the Sabbath, you will circumcise a man that the law will be not broken. And so he's referring to um, circumcising a baby boy in the rabbinic. And we actually have these. This is an external confirmation also. Um, the rabbinic saying that, that the rule to circumcise the baby boy on the eighth day supersedes the rule not to work on the Sabbath. So you actually um, could circumcise on the Sabbath and that didn't count as work. So Jesus is authentically citing rabbinic ruling. And then he said, but I made a whole, a man whole on the Sabbath. And then that was, you know, considered to be breaking the Sabbath. So this, again, is that kind of mental way of thinking to to circumcise is to cut off something to. But Jesus made the man whole He mm-hmm. put him together, as it were, by healing him. You can see the similarity of his mind yeah. and the way his mind works, that he uses loosing and loosing to show hypocrisy and poor priorities in Luke. And he uses circumcising and making whole to show poor priorities and hypocrisy in John. And it's the same guy. So that would yeah. be an example of the unity of Jesus' character and his uh, mental workings and his ways of thinking, talking, and acting in uh, across the Gospels. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love that. I love that. As we're getting closer to, to the end of our time here, let's try to pull all this together and what we've talked about with the evidences, reliability of the New Testament, and so on. What, what does this all mean? What, is, what does these evidences mean for the historical reliability of the New Testament? And what does that mean for the challenge of Christian belief, both for somebody who's listening who might be skeptical, also for those who might be uh, a, a Christian or doubting Christian? So let's talk about the central miracle of Christianity, which I think arguably is Jesus' resurrection. Both Acts and the Gospels are relevant to this. Acts, um, in part because it shows what apostles were preaching. You know, they're there on the day of Pentecost. What is Peter saying? You know, right there from the beginning. And it shows the persecution that they faced. You know, you don't have to go uh, outside to other records for persecution. You can see what they faced right from the very beginning and the dangers they were running. The stoning of Stephen is an act. They're being ordered not to preach is in Acts. The uh, beheading of James is in Acts. The persecution of Saul before he was converted is in Acts. It's all there. They're risking this right from the beginning. That's very important to the argument for the resurrection, that they were t- 
telling this in this context where they were risking everything. So Acts is important there. Um, the Gospels are important because they contain our primary source statements about the resurrection, you know, the accounts. And so why do we think that those accounts are not just made up years later? Uh, Bart Ehrman likes to use the analogy of a telephone game. You know, one person tells it to this person, tells it to this person, et cetera, mm-hmm. and it gets corrupted. Okay. How do we know that that's not what these gospel accounts of the resurrection are? Um, even to say that these are the accounts that the original witnesses claimed. You know, even if if we don't say, okay, the gospel's reliable, they contain these accounts, so the accounts are true, end of argument. Even if we go a little more subtly and we just say, well, this is what the disciples said, as opposed to being something that the disciples, you know, cousins, uncles, aunt said, okay, no, this is really what the people who would have been right there actually said. Um, How do we know that? And the reliability of the Gospels is relevant, very strongly relevant to that, that these are not coming at many removes, that this is actually, no, this is what they said, you know, right up front, right from the beginning. Um, And that, of course, is the challenge of of Christian faith. Is Jesus who he said he is? Uh, Also, what did Jesus teach about himself? Okay, if we're going to teach Christian doctrine, we're going to base it even on the resurrection. Well, what is Christian doctrine? Did Jesus claim to be God? Did he say, I and the Father are one? Okay, so the reliability of the Gospels is relevant to that, that when we face Jesus uh, in in these documents, and this is what he tells us about himself, this is the authority he claims, and this is the sign that he said he would give that he had that authority. Okay, what's the cash value? When the rubber meets the road, is this what really happened? The reliability of these documents is intensely relevant uh, to that. And then with Acts and the epistles, the authorship of the epistles then becomes relevant also to the doctrine that they contain. Do they come from an original apostle? So those are some ways in which this is really, really practically important. And I think it should challenge people to face the question, is Jesus who he says he is? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a question that we all need to face, whether we are a committed believer or whether you, you're someone who's listening, who's, who's exploring, investigating. Uh, because if, he, if we take his claim seriously that he was Lord over all, uh, well, then we need to make sure, was he Lord over all or not? Because if he was, then, uh, then I owe my, my life to him. I owe an account of my life to him, right? My, my obedience and allegiance. Uh, and if he wasn't, well, then I can move on. Uh, so that is that is an important this, uh, a question that's important for us to all explore uh, and 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 take seriously uh, Christians as well. If we are going to continue to uh, to to hold on to what we believe in a culture that is increasingly different and more than that even hostile to us, we should make sure that we have a high degree of confidence in uh, the Jesus that we, and knowing the, the, the Jesus that we claim to follow so that whenever we are challenged, persecuted, um, mocked, whatever else, uh, we'll be able to, to remain faithful because we, we believe, uh, that Jesus is who he said he was and that he was who, uh, was faithfully presented to us in the new Testament. That's right. And the other thing that's great about it is that we don't have to just believe it on blind faith. So I'm trying to bring robust evidence for that so that we don't say, well, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, it's, yeah. it's better than that. It's better than that, that we actually have objective evidence. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's what this, this is so great for. And that's why, that's why I think apologetics is something that needs to be loved by the church mm-hmm. and not just a few people uh, out there who like to, to argue with non-believers. I think that's how apologetics is usually looked at. Mm-hmm. Right. That's usually just for the intellectuals who want to uh, make arguments, but absolutely not. This is something that should be loved by every disciple and Christian in the church because it uh, it it makes our faith more robust with these evidences and, uh, and and reasons that we have to believe. And like like I shared earlier in, in my own story, uh, something that acts as a bulwark against doubt. Right. And, you know, even if a person is uh, fortunate enough not to suffer direct persecution here, we're, you know, often very fortunate um, in, in our countries, you know, we're all going to suffer uh, pain, illness, 
you know, nobody gets through this life without having something hard happen, you know, death and of, of people that we love and so forth. And so we got to have something to hang on to in those times. Yeah, absolutely. So before we go, Lydia, uh, do you want to just help point us to where people can find you online and find your, uh, your, the, the content that you're putting out? Uh, and yeah. like I said, it'll be all linked in the show notes, but go ahead and tell us where it is as well. Yeah. So you can, one thing you can remember if it, if you just want something easy to remember, you can go to lydiamcgrew.com and then you can get like links to these other things from that. But if you go to Facebook, I post a lot on Facebook now, uh, Lydia McGrew author. So you look for Lydia McGrew author and you can click like and follow that. Also look for the Lydia McGrew YouTube channel on YouTube. It's just called Lydia McGrew. I, I didn't think of any fancy name. Um, and I'm putting content out there. I try to put something new out there weekly. I kind of meander through different topics uh, as the spirit moves, as it were. Um, so there's that. And then there are the three books uh, in New Testament. There's Hidden in Plain View, which we've mostly been talking about today, The Mirror or the Mask, and The Eye of the Beholder. Um, and so those are out there. So you can go to YouTube, you can go to Facebook, and you could also go to LydiaMcGrew.com. There is a um, sample chapter of the Eye of the Beholder on LydiaMcGrew.com if you just want to see a, a sample chapter. I think there may be a couple sample chapters. So um, that's that's one place where you can find some things sort of sort of put together. Also, if you um, if you do like my YouTube channel, be sure to subscribe so you will also get notifications when I have new content. Absolutely. All of those are going to be linked in the show notes. So you guys who are watching or listening and you want to follow Lydia on YouTube, uh, Facebook, or check out her blog and all these other resources, buy her books. I highly recommend all of it. Check out the show notes so you can get the links there and not miss out on any of it. Well, this has been a great conversation. I, I really, really appreciate your time. I've been looking forward to this uh, so much. And so Lydia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Erin. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast.